you know, we had been living in a nice three bedroom, you know, apartment. I was sharing room with my brother. Uh, we moved into a less than 300 square foot apartment, one bedroom. My parents slept on a porch. Uh, I had a share room with my sister. Uh, it was a disgusting place in Miami wow. with the heat of Miami, no air conditioning. And, and literally I woke up in the morning and now I knew what bankruptcy meant. Welcome to the More Than Corporate Podcast. I'm Amber Furman, recovering perfectionist and serial accomplisher. If you're anything like I used to be, you've been living your life thinking that if you accomplish enough stuff, you'll finally find the success you've always wanted. But what if it's not about accomplishing more stuff? What if it's about accomplishing the right stuff? I believe you don't find success. You create it by intentionally designing the life you want and having the courage to get out of your comfort zone to live your design. I went from doing what I was supposed to do to doing what I love to do, and now I get to help others do the same. Keep listening as I chat with inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day and learn how you too can live the life you've always wanted. Welcome back to another episode of the More Than Corporate Podcast. I'm really excited to have my guest, Michael Coles, with us. Michael is the author of Time to Get Tough. He is the founder of the Great American Cookie Company, the former CEO of Caribou Coffee, um, cyclist, fisherman, amazing individual. I'm so glad to have you on the show, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Thank you. <laughs> I am so excited to have you here. Um, I think that your your background and the experiences that you have are going to be so beneficial. And I know that you're full of so much knowledge, but I want to go back because I always think it's really interesting to learn what led to the mindset that created the life that you have now. So when you were a kid, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, what did you think your life was going to look like? Wow. Oh. Well, um, well, my life was pretty much in turmoil about the time I was 12. My dad had gone bankrupt when I was 10. And um, I obviously as a 10 year old kid, I really didn't know what bankruptcy meant. I knew that I came home from school. There was a panel truck outside my house, had all our personal belongings on it. Uh, my dog, I had a black hawker spaniel named Lucky. She was sitting in my red wagon with a bowl and her food, and my parents had arranged for me to give away my dog. Uh, and so bankruptcy to me was you lose your house and you lose your dog. That's what it meant. <laughs> I had no understanding of the financial aspect. Wow. And my dad, who always thought he would uh, recover, continued, we moved to an apartment. We had all our stuff around. It didn't really feel that different. Uh, but by the time I was almost 13, um, my dad, who thought he would always recover, had continued living a lifestyle that was above his means. His wages were being so garnished that he was barely bringing home a paycheck. And so in the middle of the night, after they had basically sold everything we had, we moved to Florida, which was a debtor's state. And uh, so you couldn't get your wages garnished. And uh, when we got there, you know, we had been living in a nice three bedroom, you know, apartment. I was sharing room with my brother. Uh, we moved into a less than 300 square foot apartment, one bedroom. My parents slept on a porch. Uh, I had a share room with my sister. Uh, it was a disgusting place in Miami wow. with the heat of Miami, no air conditioning. And, and literally I woke up in the morning and now I knew what bankruptcy meant. 
And so um, I woke up and I had two choices to make. One was whether I could believe like my dad did that this was going to give him a, a clean slate, start over and recover, or I could take and accept the fact this was the new reality and get a job and try to help my family. I was almost 13. It wasn't heroic at all. It was, I was very upset about it. I was angry because when my parents told me we were moving to Miami, I was thinking about teenage girls and babies. <laughs> not working. You were yeah. thinking, yes, not I get working. to go to Miami and get a right. job. But the minute I made that decision, I knew that, you know, my teenage years were not going to be what I had wanted them to be. And I did get a job. Uh, and when I was 13 years old, I was very, very fortunate uh, to have met a man named Irving Settler who was in, had a clothing store where occasionally when I had some money, I could buy something, but I had gotten to be friends with him over the, those months that I had been there. And he hired me and became my boss, mentor, and really a second father and virtually started making me believe that I could actually have a, a real life. You know, that this was, he was teaching me business. I'm not kidding. It was like, it was like, uh, uh, <clears throat> that show where um, Professor Higgins is teaching uh, the woman from, uh, can't remember, My Fair Lady. Is My Fair okay. Lady? Yeah. And Irving not only was teaching me about business, but he would literally, he and his wife, my parents, we had no money to go out to eat. And he would take me out to dinner, show me which fork to use, honestly, which fork to use. And, wow. You know, out of order. And, and so I would say at that point that when I was about 14 or 15 years old, I really began to believe that I could have a successful life, whatever that meant. Yeah, I, there's so much that's going through my head, both um, this ideological idea of how crazy it is that <clears throat> your life turned out the way that it did because of the things that you were not excited about as a kid, right? Do you ever look back and think about what life would have or could have been if you weren't forced to get a job at 13? Or are you the type of person that doesn't think that way? No, no. I mean, I there definitely what I look back at, uh, I never think about what what it might have been like. I mean, I know, look, my life was not as tough as others. My parents were not as poor as others. Um, my opportunities were not as limited as others, uh, but I would have, I would say that two things, if I had a guess, I would say that if my father had not lost all his money and had recovered or whatever it may have been, uh, I would, I would have had a different life. And I don't think frankly, it would have been as meaningful a life. It might've been an okay life, but I don't think it would have been as meaningful. I don't think it would have given me the thought processes I've had around giving back and education and mentoring and all those other things. I also think that if I had met Irving Settler when I did, it's very possible because I had many friends that were in the industry, the clothing industry I was in. It was a wild time to be in the fashion clothing business. It was, you know, um, literally, you know, sex, drugs, and alcohol. I mean, it was crazy. Wow. And wow. Um, I lost three of my closest friends to drugs. Um, and, um, but I was again, fortunate somebody stepped in, my wife, Donna stepped in right around that time. And it just, you know, it completely changed my life. And so I've been very lucky. Look, I wrote my book. 
you know, time to get tough, how cookies, coffee, and a crash led to success in business and life. And there are four people who saved my life. And I know that without those four people, my life would be very different than it is today. Yeah, it's so interesting to look back on those people and those things and those experiences and know that they shaped the life that we have right now. And, and you're right. If you think about life being different, it's, it's not a matter of like better or worse, just different. And, and life is so great right now and meaningful for you that different isn't appealing, I'm sure. Um, when let me, let me I'll say one thing. You know, I, yeah. I, did, I did a talk yesterday. Uh, in Atlanta. And I got asked this question. I get this a lot. You know, um, some, some of they asked me if there was anything you could do differently, you know, would you go back and do it if you could do it? And my answer to that is always, as long as you can promise me that I'll be right where I am now, yes, there are things I would go back and change. But if you can't promise me that I'm going to at least have what I have now, no, I don't want to change anything. Yeah. And that's such a powerful answer because, you know, we, we've all seen the, the butterfly effect movies, the whole sure. like frequency movies where you change that one thing in your life and then everything else changes. Um, that's supposed to teach us about the blessings and the hard times and all of that stuff. Um, but to say like, I am so satisfied with my life. I think that that's the goal for, for us as humans, right. To be in a place where we're, we're so satisfied with what we have that the idea of changing something and not having this um, is not appealing right. to us. So right. I think that that's a really cool place to be. And I know I talk on this um, podcast a lot about the definition of success. And what you just said is definitely my definition of success. Like I want a life that I wouldn't give up for anything, that right. I wouldn't trade for anything, which I think is really cool. Yeah. And believe me, I made plenty of mistakes. My book is more about things that went wrong than things that went right. Your and book is amazing, by the way. So I think, amazing. I think, I think that, um, and I say this a lot, I think that the difference between success and failure is how you deal with the unexpected. I, I don't think building a business is, if anybody thinks they're going to build a business and everything is just going to go right, you know, forget it. Don't do, even do it. Don't attempt it. But it's learning from those things and never making those same mistakes twice. Yeah. And then building and building and learning from it. So um, that's kind of what's I you know, and I didn't know that in my 20s. Of honestly. course. You know, I didn't know that. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I was tell people, but you know, I started working, like I said, full time when I was 13 years old. And so by the time I was 30, I thought I knew all the answers to everything, you know? And I, I realized I did know the answers to everything I knew at the time. My problem was I didn't know all the questions yet. There's yeah. so, many, so many more questions that come up as, as you live your life and you just don't have those answers. So, yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, that's I, I, think life, I think life is a, you know, is, is a journey. And I think that um, I love learning, you know? And I think that, um, I learned, I'm not joking. I learned something I would say every day, every single day, something happens. And I'm like, Hmm, I never thought about that way before, or, you know, I never, I didn't know how to do that before. And, yeah. And it's just, and I think being open to that, you know, allows you at any age, younger, older, uh, to be able to grow in what you want to do. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with you. You know, I have people ask me when, because I opened my law firm and knowing nothing about business, like it was a rough ride. And then I've learned over the last four years and people have asked me, you know, do you think it would have been any smoother for you if you would have taken these business courses? And I said, well, maybe I just would have made different mistakes. Like it wouldn't have been a mistake free process. I just would have made different mistakes. Right. So it's the idea that you're ever going to get through any business venture completely unscathed. Like that's not happening. Um, which I think is really cool because one of the things that you make clear in, in what you're talking about in your book is surrounding yourself with the people who can help mitigate those things, you know, making sure that you're surrounding yourself. I think that that's one of the most powerful things of all of your ventures that you talk about in your book is you had the support team around you that when things did ultimately um, catch on fire, for lack of a better word, um, literally or figuratively, um, you had the people around you who knew how to adjust to that and and move forward as a team. Well, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, Colin Powell passed away this week and I was very fortunate uh, in 2004 uh, to have dinner with him. Um, literally, I mean, there were six people at dinner and I was sitting right next to him. And when he got up to do his talk, it was a very big group. But when he got up to do his talk, I said, to, I, I, you know, I've been trying to think of something smart to say, you know, throughout dinner and everything sounded stupid. <laughs> so, but then I finally realized I was going to lose this opportunity to ask him a question. And I, when he got up to go up on stage, I turned to him and I said, what do you think makes a great leader? And without hesitation, he turned to me and said, you know, you're a great leader when people will follow you, even if it's only out of curiosity. And, you know, I thought, I've thought a lot about that over the years since he said it. And I think that it took me a long time. When I say a long time, again, we're starting in 13, but it took me into my thirties to realize one, I didn't have to have all the answers. I didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room that I could surround myself with people who were better at specific areas of the business than I was. And my job was just to lead them to the vision that we had as a company. That was my job. And ultimately, I got all the credit for that, you know, more credit than I probably deserved. But, you know, I think that's what leadership is. Leadership is, is one, allowing people to do their jobs and make sure that they know that they're appreciated and know that um, you know we're kind of all in it together. And I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. I think that's why, especially now when they talk about millennials and they talk about millennials not wanting to stay in a job, I think millennials will stay. I mean, they're, they're not, maybe they're wired a little different, but the bottom line is I think if you keep them interested and excited and feel um, appreciated, and know that they're communicated with so they understand what the company is really, whatever it might be all about. I don't think they leave. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe some will because they want to start their own thing. But the, but the millennials that I've gotten been fortunate enough uh, to be involved with, they don't strike me that way at all. They just strike me is that if they feel like where they are is not where they should be, then they're going somewhere else. Yeah, which is really commendable, right? People talk about, oh, they won't stay. Um, but to be able to say, they're just not driven by money the same way that 
generations previously were in a way where money becomes more important than everything else. And, and this satisfaction becomes more important than anything else and feeling like you're in the right spot, which I think is extremely important because I know firsthand the um, issues that come along with putting money as the most important thing in your life and then chasing that and realizing, okay, I've got all my goals. Now, what do I do with the rest of my life? Cause this one that I just built for myself is awful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I want to know, we were just talking about kind of going back a little bit and um, looking at the journey. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing um, that you think would have helped when you were starting the Great American Cookie Company, what do you think you would have told yourself if, if you needed a piece of advice you didn't have back then? Well, I think um, it's in the book. Mm-hmm. I, on the first day, I would have remembered oven mitts for sure <laughs> because we could have lost everything on that very first day because the lease we had, which was personally guaranteed for a quarter of a million dollars, which we didn't have, uh, if the landlord or the mall manager had broken our lease that day, uh, not only would I not have succeeded in the cookie business, I would have had to go bankrupt uh, for the debt. So what I, I got, but that's not really what the advice would be. The advice would be is that, you know, triple check what you're doing and know that you're probably going to miss something. And, you know, I actually believe that that first day mishap probably was one of the best things that could have happened to us because I think it was a wake up call for my partner and I, even though we had studied the business for almost a year, it was still a wake up call realizing how much we didn't know. And yeah. so that I think kind of on a regular basis, it was a reevaluation of how to really build this company. And I had never really built a, an out of state multi-unit you know, business. I mean, it was just, it was a big, big learning process. It took a lot of reading time. I wish we had had the internet. We would have spent a, you know, more time at home and less time in a library. <laughs> People even know what libraries are, but, you know, just trying to learn. And then again, I was smart enough uh, to surround myself with people that could help me in the areas of the business between shipping and manufacturing. And because a lot of people look at the cookie business and think, uh, you know, you had to hear the story, you know, we put in $8,000, we borrowed $25,000, never borrowed any more money after that. And we built a hundred million dollar company and people hear that and think, well, you probably had a smooth ride, you know, all the way and nothing could be, you know, further from the truth. But the one thing that I knew at that point was that we had to hire for the future, not for the present. We had to hire people that could take us where we wanted to go, even if it meant personal sacrifice. And I, the story that's in my book is the first big hire we hired a guy that came from multi, multi-unit franchising. Mm-hmm. He uh, wanted twice as much money as we were prepared to pay somebody because we weren't looking for a national person. We were looking for an area manager, basically. A district, maybe at best a district manager. And this guy had been a national multi-unit manager. And my partner and I were finally at a point where we could start taking an income. We had been in the business about a year and then never taken a salary. And we're finally at the point where we could do that. 
And we had to get in a room together and say, we're going to have to postpone. We, this is the guy we need to hire. This is the guy that we need to help us grow this business. And it was the, one of the smart, smartest decisions we ever made. We, and I, I think that's the one thing I would say that both of us were pretty good at was it's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to use your windshield wipers and keep it clear as to where yeah. you're going. Because if you don't stay focused on where you want to go, you'll never get there. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you listening who doesn't know what um, Michael's talking about with the oven mitt story, go check out the book because I promise you it is an amazing book. And this story is so um, metaphoric for so many different things. And I'm reading absolutely. your book, not that I would suggest doing this, but I read your book in two days at a family reunion. And it's because I started it one night and I couldn't put it down. And so I was like, you know what, I guess we're just going to finish this family. Um, I'll be out in 48 hours. Um, but I'm reading your book and it just reminded me of when I opened my law firm and I was like, okay, I'm good to go. I need to mail off this pleading. I was like, crap, where are the envelopes? Where are the stamps? Like it's all the little things that people had always sure. provided to me my entire career exactly. that yeah. would, could have been the downfall of the business. Then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I know how to be an attorney. Now I need to learn how to order stamps. And, yeah. and folders and like create templates and all this stuff that you shouldn't have, you don't think about. So it's those little things, like the, the successes and the details of those little things. So, you know, whenever uh, we were, when I was running Caribou, we had people with, that would apply to, for the job from a, a much bigger coffee company. No, the name will go unmentioned. And they would say, no, I, you know, I really like the idea of coming to work at a smaller company. I, I just is scrappy. And, and when that, when that person, if they were going to be a C-suite person that got, they got to me, the first thing I would say to them, do you know how to run a fax machine back then? Do you know how to run a fax machine? Yeah, you know make, you know make copies. And they would look at me like it was a foreign <laughs> language. I would say, if you want to come to work at a scrappy company, just understand, we don't have all this administrative help. You yeah. know, you want something done more than likely you're going to have to do it yourself. Yeah. So on that note, because I have a list of questions that were submitted by my listeners that um, I told them I'd try to work in. And so if it seems like I'm jumping around a little bit, that's why. Um, and on the note of the um, coffee shop that shall remain nameless, how did you, as you were going into Caribou Coffee, which at the time was this small business, how did you hold and create um, additional market share in that and interest in that when you have massive coffee shops that you're competing against? So first of all, let me just say that coffee business that shall go unmentioned, Starbucks, uh, <laughs> um, has done an amazing job um, for as big as they are. But the bottom line is what I did at Caribou was to, I, you know, I had the, this drawing up on the whiteboard, which was a big battleship. And then Caribou being a small, you know, little carrier, I'm not carrier, but a little speedboat. And I would say, I said, if you just think about those two vessels trying to go in a complete circle, which one can do it faster? And obviously it's the small speedboat. And I said, we've got to give customers an experience that's just better than what they get at, that, at the big place. 
And I said, if we can do that and do it on a consistent basis, and we can be innovative faster than that, because we should be able to do things better and faster. If we can't do things better and faster, you're right, we lose. But if we have a mindset that we can do it better and faster and give customers an experience that they cannot possibly do. I'm not saying they can't do it in some stores, but they can't do it across the board. They can't do it, they're just too big. Now other companies you know, in the, in the food business have learned how to do it. Like McDonald's is an example. McDonald's is not about customer service. They're not mm -hmm. about knowing your name, but they're amazing because what they realize is their business is consistency, not necessarily great, but good consistency and fast. That's it. When you get in a McDonald's drive-thru, you know you're going to be out. I don't care how long the line is. You're going to be out of there in five minutes. They have figured that out. Same thing now with Chick-fil-A. I'm, I'm not saying that Chick-fil-A is learning people's names, but they do give you a warm feeling. There is that consistency within the, I don't agree with necessarily everything that Chick-fil-A does, but the bottom line is, the consistency of that business is amazing. And that, those were the examples of companies I used. I said, now we're different. We've got to learn people's names. We've got to make a connection with them. And, we, and my wife actually came up with this because I said, we got to know their DNA. And I could never put my arms around that, you know, DNA. But I knew that's, I know what I meant. But I said, so Donna came up with drink normally asked for. So if I don't know your name, I know you're my, you know, vanilla, you know, my mocha, or you're my, you know, vanilla latte, or whatever you may be, before I might, might even know your name. The other thing was at, at Caribou, is that they were living in a world of very, of good, not very good, but good. And, you know, the book, Good to Great, what it talks mm -hmm. about is so many times good is what keeps companies from being great. And I had gotten half of our management team on board to where I thought we could take the company. The other half was still lagging behind because they were still envisioning that Caribou was doing this consistently, which we weren't. And so I got a small van uh, and I put 10 people in it and I took them to two or three different Caribous, watched the process. They picked them. I didn't pick them. They weren't allowed to tell anybody we were coming. We just watched them. And then I said, okay, now we're going to go to a Starbucks. And we went to a Starbucks. And I'll never forget it. One of the, one of the team, one of the person on the team said, they're doing the caribou experience better than we are. Mm -hmm. And that was the wake up call. And that's when the whole team got engaged in how are we going to fix this? How are we going to make it consistent? I, that's, that's amazing way to visually show that you're not doing things as well as you think that you are, or somebody else is doing them better. Um, so th that's amazing advice. Um, I want to, so I want to step back for just a minute. We um, have bounced around a little bit. I so just add one more thing to that. Yeah, of course. We had, a, we had an amazing woman working at Caribou. Um, her name is Deb Jones. She was head, head of training. And when we, she and I were really on the same page. And as we started putting uh, this transformation together, we decided we were going to make a video and we weren't going to hire actors. We, we knew that we had stores that were doing it well. And so we went out to those stores and made this video. It's called, it's on, it's on YouTube, actually. It's called the Caribou Experience. It was 10 minutes when we did it for the teams to 
break them in, but now it's like three minutes where he changed it. But the point of it was, we didn't hire actors. We actually showed actual stores, actual people showing what the experience should look like. And, and Deb Jones had the greatest story, which is why, why um, she was able to convince the other players that were involved in this, why we should do it that way. She said when she was a little girl, her parents would get very upset with her because she would, they would tell her to go up and clean her room. And she would come down five minutes later and say the room is clean. She'd go out and play. Parents would go upstairs and they're like, this room's not clean. And her parents had a Polaroid camera, if you remember those. Yes. And her parents decided that it, this was like an endless battle. So they went upstairs and they cleaned the room and got it exactly the way the room should look. And they took a picture of it. And they, when she came back in, they said to her, here's what a clean room looks like. Now, when we say go up and clean your room. Don't come down until it looks like this. And that was the whole point of the Caribou Experience video. You cannot always just tell people what something is supposed to be like. But if they see it and they can see the expression on customers' faces and customers expressing loyalty themselves to why they come there, such as one customer saying, it's the cheers of coffee, you know, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you told that story because I think that there's this trend going on right now where somebody is saying, okay, I don't know how to do something in business. I'm just going to hire somebody to do it. And then I'm never going to need to learn it. And while it's important to surround yourself with people who can do things, if you don't know what's supposed to be being done, how are you supposed to make sure that it's what you want? And so that whole picture idea of, Hey, this is what I want it to be. Now, who can I find that can help me execute this at the level that I want it to be executed? That's an amazing way to look at it well look at it also this way well, there's probably people sitting out there right now who have kids they're not cleaning their room and have just said man this is the best idea i've heard yes <laughs> yeah everything from your business to parenting which exactly. isn't that the truth that all the good things that work in one area of your life work well sure. in the other area of your life we just try to separate them um, so I want to step back for people who haven't read the book, um, because I know that we've bounced around to some of your accomplishments and there's so many that we can't dig into them all. Um, you talked about the, um, getting started in the clothing industry. And I know that you, you worked in sales in that too, for a while, didn't you? Um, and, and what were some of the lessons that you learned working sales in the clothing industry that allowed you to then found, um, the great American cookie company, take caribou coffee where it went, and then do all the other things that came after that. So, you know, I would say that, um, my first real boss Irving, um, taught me most of what I know. I mean, I'm not saying that I didn't expand upon that, uh, cause it was just a single store. But I think Irving taught me early on, if you have, you know, if you have a good customer, it's a lot, you, what you want to do is work hard to keep them because it's hard to get good customers and they cost, cost a lot more time and energy and resources. And so uh, as a sales guy, I always tried to do more than just bring in my wares and try to sell something and get an order. I always tried to do a little bit extra, you know, something that was unexpected that would 
tie them not just to the merchandise, but to me as a person. So, uh, you know, like this is not most people are not going to relate to this, but you know, back in the days of the clothing, especially the pant business, the jean business, you know, I hired a young guy to work for me that would take inventories. There were no computers. So the way people had a reorder was they had to manually go out and take inventory. Most people only took inventory once or twice a year at the most. My, my accounts that I was cultivating, I was taking inventory sometimes two and three times a week. Oh, wow. And I would, and I would be bringing them orders. I would say, here's what you need to fill in. And so first it was good for me because I was getting not just you know once or twice a season, I was getting orders sometimes eight, 10, 12 times a year, you know, where you normally would have had two orders. That's it. You get an order in summer and you get an order in winter and that's it. So, uh, and that was all from, from Irving. I mean, that was all kind of, how do you make yourself more important to somebody? And um, so that, that my knowledge, and by the way, you know, I started, I had a clothing manufacturing company, by the way, before Great American Cookies, which was the Great American Clothing Company. That's right. Yeah, the Great American Clothing Company. And, you know, that company right there, it was, it was based on that philosophy. Uh, it was how to make a real difference for major companies who were putting in big orders for special products that were being made. Um, I think my first business, which went bankrupt, uh, my first chain of retail stores that went bankrupt, which I learned the big lesson of, you know, you don't have to know everything, but you better pay attention to everything. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So I knew I'd go back in business and make mistakes, but I wouldn't make the same mistakes. But I think, again, I think one of the, one of the things that people have to accept is their own responsibility when things don't go right. I mean, the blame game may make you feel good, but it doesn't, it doesn't grow you as a person. And that's not just in business, that's in your personal life. That's, you know, that's kind of everywhere. And so when I, when we went into the cookie business, which honestly, I never expected it to become the business it became. You know, I had that, I had a devastating motorcycle accident that a lot that didn't allow me really to do anything else. And I had to focus on that business because I had no other source of income and couldn't afford to lose the money that we had invested and were responsible for. And I realized that the cookie business, the way we ran it, we could have just as easily been selling clothes. It was the same basic principles. The manufacturing business of clothing was the same principles of manufacturing batter. You know, when I got the caribou, I had never been in the coffee business. It's all the same. It's just the same. You know, manufacturing is the same. Selling retail is the same. Um, a lot of people just forget that. And uh, I, I've just been, I've been very fortunate and, um, you know, I'm great, very grateful to the people that helped me grow these businesses and probably don't get enough credit for what, what an incredible job they did. And also all the great customers that were out there that bought all these products. 
Yeah. Yeah. It is all about the people, right? We forget that sometimes it's all about the people around us. So one of the things that we connected with the first time that we talked that, um, another thing I love from your story is your cycling because I did obstacle course racing. And I think that personal achievement comes from pushing yourself physically and learning what you can do. Like you never really realize how strong you are until you try to do something with your body that it's not supposed to do. What, um, led you to decide, cause it sounds so crazy that you wanted to ride a bicycle across the United States. Four times. Four times. Yes. Like so, not just once. Cause somebody out here is listening, going, he did what? And then four times four. Yeah. So, uh, when I had my motorcycle accident, I was told by doctors when I woke up in the hospital that I had been in a near fatal motorcycle accident and I would probably never walk unaided again. I would always need canes or crutches. And I accepted that because I figured it was better than not waking up at all. And about nine months after my accident, I had an incident with my daughter, Taryn, who was three at the time. I was on two canes and she asked me to race her up to the mailbox. We had a steep driveway. And I took, I figured even on two canes, I could beat her up the driver, but the pain was excruciating. It was the first time since my accident that I realized that I was disabled and uh, it was devastating and she could see it in my face. And before I could even make an excuse to her, she just looked at me and said, you know, daddy, I'm really too tired to run to the mailbox. It about killed me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just came back in the house and told my wife that there was no way I could spend the rest of my life like this. Because I said it was the first time since my accident that I realized I was disabled. But as I said, I mean, I grew up as a poor kid and all my life people had always told me what my limits were and always gave me this incentive to prove them wrong. But this time, you know, learning how to walk again really hurts. And so I was living in a safety zone that doctors had given me. And so I started a self-styled rehabilitation program that eventually took me from a stationary bike to a regular bike. I started riding longer and longer distances. Um, and as I got stronger and more flexibility, I realized how lucky I had been that I had had the drive and determination to get better and that there had to be a lot of people out there that might've given up. And if I could do something on a bike to show them that you just can never quit. You got to keep trying that um, maybe it would act as an incentive for them. So but I got this nutty idea to ride from Savannah, Georgia to San Diego, California. Uh, not necessarily, I wasn't really thinking at the time records. I was thinking like 30 days and then it became 20 days and then it became 10 days, you know, cause I knew what the coast to road coast records were for, like LA to New York. And so that first race, I was very ill-prepared across the country in 15 and a half days. And then um, I knew it was not my best effort. And so that was 1982, 1983, I did it again, set the same record, same goal, 10 days. Um, I was on a sub nine day record. I was less than 500 miles from San Diego. Uh, would have gotten across the country in eight and a half days, almost like a week faster than the year before. And um, I got blown off my bike by a dust devil, which I'm sure you're familiar with in California. Yes. Yeah, they're little dwarf tornadoes. I got blown off my bike and broke my collarbone and the ride was over. So I went again in 1984. 
And this time, anybody that rides a bike, we started out with 30 mile an hour headwinds and got those headwinds got all the way up to 70 miles an hour when we got to, to the trailing edge of the Rocky Mountains uh, coming into San Diego to the point where you couldn't ride the bike, you couldn't stay upright. You had to just walk. So I, there's, you know, there's a documentary that shows me literally pushing my bike up the hill. And I was prepared to walk the last 30 miles into San Diego if I had to. And uh, anyway, I, got, I did manage to break my record. I got across the country in 11 days, eight hours, 15 minutes, broke my record by over four days. And then in 1989, I joined a four-man team to do the race across America, which went from LA to New York. Um, and we, we raced against five other teams. We crossed the country, we won the race across America. We crossed the country in five days, one hour, eight minutes. It's the fastest crossing by a four-man team of the United States ever. And it's the fastest 3,000 miles ever covered under human power. And here, all these many years later, both records still stand. That's so amazing. I, I loved that part of your story um, for so many reasons. I'm interested to know though. So actually, before I ask that question, where did these races fall in the timeline of your business? Was it while you were at Great American Cookie Company oh, yeah. before? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was, uh, we were, we were probably in 82. We probably had about 50 stores. And by 1984, we had over 100 stores. So, so it was 82, 83, 84, and all the way up through 89. And we were content. And I learned so much about running my business, building a team from doing those events, things I probably never would have known how to do as well as I did. But the biggest part of it was in 1984, and, and anybody out there that wants to see a documentary, just read, look at Michael Cole's on YouTube, Michael Cole's Bicycle. It was a, this was a documentary that was done. The winds were so devastating. I remember standing in San Diego, holding my bike over my head and thinking to myself, I will never look at any problem ever again the same way. Yep. Because I had to reach so deep to finish, to get across the country with those devastating headwinds that I knew nothing I ever would look at again would ever be as difficult. Yeah, and that, yep. That statement right there is the reason that I tell people to push themselves physically because you just, right. you never know. Like I, I think I mentioned to you, I wear this wristband every single day from my first um, 24 hour race because every time stuff gets tough, I get to look down and go, it is never as right. tough as running 24 hours in the desert. Right. Exactly. Ever. That's amazing. And you started to lead into exactly where my question was going. And my question was going to be, what is it that you, that this experience of riding across the country four times, what do you think that taught you? What's one of the biggest lessons it taught you about running your business? Well, I'd say, I'd say honestly that the, the biggest one is that um, there's a chapter in the book called the last five miles. And it was a, a something I didn't even remember that had happened in 1984. Because when I got to San Diego, where I was five miles from the courthouse and all across the country, I had had uh, police escorts to get me through the cities. And so when I stopped, it was by my own choice. I never had anybody making me stop because, you know, it's not that I didn't stop. I'd only slept 11, I'm sorry, I'd only slept 
22 hours in 11 days when we got to San Diego, less than two hours a night. And so when I got to San Diego, we couldn't get a police escort. And I didn't remember any of this until I wrote the book. I literally woke up at four o'clock in the morning thinking I had been dreaming and realized this was the experience that we had to go back and rewrite most of the book. But the last five miles, which I didn't remember, um, I got stopped by the first traffic light. We had no support behind mm -hmm. us anymore. And my body started to break down. I felt my legs start to cramp. I was with a friend of mine who had figured out the route to get me to the courthouse. And I looked at him and I just said, I've got nothing left. I just, I'm not gonna make it. And he looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. You know, I'd just ridden all these thousands of miles. And now the last five miles, I was ready. I, honestly, I was ready to quit. And um, so it just became a thing of intermediate calls. It was like, all right, let me see if I can make it to the next traffic light. Can I make it to the next telephone pole? You know, and then eventually I made the right turn onto Broadway going uh, going to the courthouse. And there were people cheering on the sidewalk and stuff because people knew I was coming. The adrenaline kicked in and I got to the courthouse. And I didn't remember any of that. But well, here's the crazy part of this. What I learned in those last five miles, even though I didn't remember it, guided me every day since then. Because what I realized is that it doesn't matter how many thousands of miles you train. It doesn't matter how many days, weeks, or months you put into something, even years you put into something. If you don't finish the last five miles, you will not prepare yourself for the next five miles. Now, obviously that's a metaphor, but in business, we all find ourselves working on something that's not going the way we expect it. And you can do one of two things. You can just walk away and drop it, or you can try to at least complete it and then learn from it for the next project or product you're going to develop. And so that, I don't know that my thinking ever would have changed in the way that it did after 1984, but it definitely did and it guided me. And think about the fact that that was in 1984, I wrote the book, we started writing the book in 2016. I didn't remember it until 2017 when we were about to send the book to the publisher. That's wow. when it hit me that that had happened. And there's one other thing. There's one other thing. You know, people sometimes that have watched my documentary and see those 70 mile an hour winds, because I'm telling you, until you see what it looked like, <laughs> you can't even imagine how bad it was. You know, people will ask me, why do you think you find, what, what motive you made you to keep going? And honestly, what it was is knowing that if I quit, I was going to go to a motel or hotel spend the night, wake up the next day, feel really good and want to do it one more time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do it one more time. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to get it over with and put it behind me so I could move on to other things. And, and then I he ended up doing it again anyways as a team, right? It was a very different thing. But but the thing of it is, I mean, I think that's, that's again, another lesson. Sometimes you just have to push yourself through this stuff, you know, and yeah. just to get it done. Yeah. Just to get it done. You know, Michael, you and I could sit here and talk for hours about all of the things that you've learned about business. You are such a wealth of knowledge. Your book has this amazing way of taking entertainment and stories and metaphors and connecting them to business in a way of something that I have never connected with before. And um, for anybody out there who said, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of 
of business books because they're too technical, I encourage you to check out Michael's. I'm actually featuring it in the book club this month, which has been fantastic. So time to get tough. Um, Cookies, what's the rest of the title? How Cookies, Coffee and a Crash Let the Success in Business Life. What I tell people, it's a book about business, but it's not a business book. It's not a business book. It's great. And when I tell you guys that I read it in 48 hours camping at a family reunion, like it's, it's, it's that good. Um, if anybody wants to follow up um, with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Are you on social media or what's the best I way am, for them? I have a website also, michaelcoles.com. Perfect. It has all my contact information. And, um, you know, I appreciate your, this time with you. And if you ever want to get back together again, let me know. We can talk about other stuff. Yes. But, uh, you know, you know, when I wrote the, when I wrote the book, I, I did not write this book to boast about my career. I really wrote this book to hopefully use my life as an example, all the, tr- you know, trials and tribulation I went through to build my career. And I thought it was a very relatable book to most people that they, in fact, would maybe read the book and say, well, you know what, if he did that, I think I can do that. And maybe step out of their safe space and try to do more maybe than they thought they could. And I have to tell you, when this pandemic hit, I couldn't believe the letters that I got from people that read my book because the impact that some of the stories had during that time were very helpful to people. And I couldn't have asked for more uh, in writing the book. And by the way, all of the proceeds, all the honorariums that uh, are connected to the book all go to a scholarship fund for veterans that my wife and I established at Kennesaw State University. Uh, when the GI Bill runs out, where a lot of veterans run out of money and can't complete their education, that's where this steps in and helps them finish it. So it's absolutely we're not making money off it. If you buy the book, you're doing a good thing for veterans. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have the link to the book in the show notes as well. So really quickly, before we wrap up, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I ask every single one of my guests this question. I think it is the heart of every successful business um, or at least successful life, maybe not successful business. What does success mean to you? What's that guiding post that you live your life by that everything kind of has to fall within? Well, you know, I hate the word success. I know I talk about this in the book. Mm -hmm. I know I'm more successful today than I used to be because I know when I go to hotels, I don't steal the little bars of soap (laughs) anymore. Uh, But I do grab all the shampoos I can get my hands on. And the reason I don't like the word success is because it's it's a misleading term. I mean, it's like, you know, maybe success means you're comfortable, maybe success. But to me, success is just the journey of life. And that uh, for me, it's it changes as things change in your life. For me, most of what I enjoy today, I do some consulting on a couple different businesses, but I love mentoring. I love doing what I'm doing today. Um, and I feel today, if you took the, the I guess, all of the, the money things away, if I, was, if I was in this place right now and just written this book and was able to go out and just talk to people about my experiences, I would feel really successful. I don't want to do, I don't want to do anything right now in my life that where I'm not giving something for what I'm getting. Yeah. You know, I want it to be a win for, for both sides. That's and absolutely amazing. So that's, that's, 
that's what success means. That's amazing. All right. So quick little fun random round um, as we wrap this up. You okay with that? Sure. Perfect. Um, if you could do anything other than what you're doing now, or I guess what you've done in the past, what profession do you think it would be fun to attempt? Oh, that's so easy. I, before my dad went bankrupt, I was going to, I was going to be uh, an actor. Okay. I could see it. I, I could see it. You have the voice. I would have had probably, uh, who knows what would have happened to me, but I, but I was, you know, I was doing, I was doing stand up as a kid. I was doing impersonations. That's awesome. I was doing some acting. That's probably where my life would have gone. But I'll be honest, I wouldn't trade the life I have now for anything. That's amazing. Um, If you could time travel, where would you go and why? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. If I could time travel, I think it would be, uh, I'd go back to probably 1984 and had the opportunity to take my dad to play golf. Oh, wow. That's amazing. He died died the following year. You know, every time I hear stories like that, it just, it might, I think we talked about this. My dad passed away when I was 18 and somebody answered this question by saying, if I could time travel, I would go back and listen to all the things my dad said when I wasn't listening. And I was like, and now I got to go. Like that's the end of the interview. Um, it's so true. Being able to go back and do things with people that we didn't get to do because of whatever our circumstances were. Well, you always think you're going to have more time. Yep. Absolutely. Um, all right. Other than the, your amazing book of time to get tough, what book would you recommend to a new business owner or entrepreneur, whether it be the mindset, the tactical side of things, what do you think that everyone should read? Uh, this great book called Execution uh, by Larry Bossidy and Ram. I can't remember his last name, but it's a great book. These two guys came out of uh, GE uh, and the, I gave this book to my team at Caribou when I got there. Everybody read it. We went away for a retreat. And we talked about the book and really the thumbnail of the book is that execution is not an event. It's got to become part of your culture mm-hmm. it's got, that you've got to be reinventing yourself all the time. That's amazing. And one of the things I talk about all the time is that if you're in competition with someone and you do something really well, just remember that's your competitor's starting point. Yep, absolutely. Um, and last question, because I'm a music nerd, so I have to add this to my playlist. What is your pump-up song? What is it that you listen to that you just can't have a bad day? Oh, you know, I'm so old school. I'm embarrassed. It's uh, Bob Seger. Yes, oh, don't Bob never Seger, be embarrassed of Bob, Bob Seger. old-time rock and roll. Yes. I listen to that song. And it. I listen, I listen to that song all the way across Texas on my bike to keep myself motivated. That's amazing. One of the great songs ever, ever written and done. I I love that. I love it. That's amazing. It will definitely be going in the playlist. It's already in my personal playlist. It'll just be going in this one. So Michael, thank you again for your time. I look forward to connecting again and thank you for um, spending some time with the audience. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. Hope to see you again. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the More Than Corporate Podcast. If anything that was said during this episode resonated with you or provided value in any way, it would mean the world to me if you would head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the More Than Corporate Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I'm really looking forward to connecting with you. If you'd also like to connect, I've created a Facebook group that is full of amazing people who also make it their mission to live their best life every single day. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, the name of that Facebook group is Success Center. Head over there, request to join, and I look forward to connecting with you soon.